0: Hello, and welcome to today's ResiCast. We're talking about making the property sector more progressive, and how we evolve real estate to be more responsible. I'm joined today by Philip Nell, who's the head of real assets for LaSalle Investment Management, and by Mervyn Howard, who's chairman Apache Capital Partners. Philip Nell, I'm going to start with you. You've joined, uh, you joined LaSalle Investment Management last year as head of real assets. And Obviously, you've been in the market for a couple of decades now. How how has the, the real estate sector evolved and how are you as a house creating new products to help it be more progressive?
1: Okay, well, sort of 20 years ago when I started out, there was very distinctive segregation between the sectors, principally offices, industrial, retail. Um, at present, we as a house have transitioned as has the market as a whole. We now have at least 25% of our assets outside of those sectors. And the way that that has has transgressed, I guess, from uh, a planning regime, which has also embraced a, a a more multi-sector approach, we've also we've we've mirrored that really. And there's this is focus
0: where not everything is a single asset class, and well, there's always
1: pretty much everything is mixed use. Absolutely, I think now it's incumbent on investment managers and asset managers to understand different sectors in the old days it was very much you could just get become an expert in offices and that was that was enough now i think there's there's a, a greater requirement for more more
2: diversity of knowledge
1: and,
0: and mervyn in terms of your role with apache capital partners apache has been around for about 10 years and you're largely just, focused
2: just 11 years now and uh, there's a very specific focus that apache has right now which is on uh, housing of all sorts, so from student accommodation through build to rent, uh, through to senior living and uh, retirement and care homes. Uh, so it's very focused. It's all UK, and it has been for some time now, and it really goes back to uh, a lot of the work that the founders of the business did some years ago to identify the underlying needs in the market for, uh, for space, particularly in the social infrastructure. We tend to call it social infrastructure now, both the needs the demands for this type of space but also the growing institutional interest which was uh, there in a small degree a number of years ago and is very clearly there now and your
0: jv partners and investors include the likes of harrison street nfu mutual and, and, and other top tier institutions that are obviously seeking this exposure looking to build assets from scratch and and then obviously operate them
2: yeah and, and that does that does reflect an evolution of the business uh, uh, over the last few years we had always been trying to target assets in sectors that would have an institutional buyer we 've tended to create those assets rather than buy them although we've bought, have bought existing assets but we 've always wanted to buy assets where there is an exit to an institution the thing that 's changed in the last couple of years, particularly, is that those institutions now want to be on the journey of creating those assets, being involved in institutional quality, build-to-rent apartment buildings and student accommodation, uh, and more and more looking at build-to-core strategies. So being involved in the asset creation, but holding for the longer term. And, and Philip, now, just coming back to, to
0: the point on social impact and and that side of, 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 of the world... The real estate sector does have some reputational challenges, doesn't it, on a number of fronts, whether you look at some of the issues in the fund management space, obviously problems in retail and and some of the question marks around the quality of of volume house builders. But when you look at the opportunity there to to change lives and impact the very nature of cities, there's a huge opportunity there, isn't there? Not just in housing, but in, in other areas as well. How are you as an investment house responding to that opportunity?
1: Well it's interesting I think it's a massive change in the mindset of investors. I mean we've seen a sort of fourfold probably increase in uh, the amount of what, what are termed ethical funds in the globe across the last ten years or so. Um, interest has been growing year on year in the real estate space um, and the one thing we feel I and mean, it's a point you, you make very well that you know real estate is the ultimate impact asset class you know if I'm, if I'm an investor and I 've got a choice of investing in an equity fund that may or may not hold a lot of us healthcare. Um, that's all well and good, and I guess I can, you know, perhaps indirectly see the benefit of that. But the real, the real world, and and the built environment is a hugely tangible way of delivering real, real impact in people's lives, both both socially and environmentally. Um, and yeah. and
0: what, what can we expect then from from LaSalle? Are you are you going to be launching any social impact products at any point?
1: Well, we've been investing on behalf of individual clients in uh, what we would term a pure social impact. Uh, asset classes for the last 10 plus years, um, things like care homes, retirement living, social housing, etc. Um, but that's been very specific to those clients. And what we're looking to do going forward is create something that is uh, a commingled product that would apply for a number of different clients and would look at a number of different types of assets. So whilst we will have investment into the housing sector, more generally, we'll also look at care and education and other, other forms of of impact so but,
2: but Andy i mean your, your question was was about uh, was more broad than that wasn 't it It was about the real estate industry, and I, I think there is an issue there isn 't there because we I, I think are perceived by the general public as as self interested uh, purely profit-driven, whereas uh, the built environment creates an enormous contribution to society, as, as Philip was just saying. Uh, and, and so I think there is there is a bit of messaging that we need to get across, and I know organisations like the, the the British Property Federation are trying to do that, working with government. But, but look, this is an issue, a multi-level issue, isn't it? You know, government's got to get behind us, and we heard Theresa May's commitment about 2050 carbon neutral, uh, the property industry industry's got to make itself clear about what it's doing you know in our individual organizations we've got to show that we're being responsible and contributing and and then we get down to the nuts and bolts of the individual assets that we're creating so it's it's a it's a complex multi-layered issue i think
1: it is, and and sorry, just to jump in there, I think also the, the nature of the industry has changed so much in the last twenty years. I mean, twenty years ago, it was dominated by a larger number of institutional investors. We now have a much broader spectrum of investors, and you know, be they longer term or shorter term investors. And I think, you know, given that real estate is a store of wealth for a lot of a lot of people individually, it it will struggle to lose some of that reputational issue around uh, you know absentee landlordism, um, control exploitation to a degree um so the institutions have got to work really hard to, to make that change
0: and, and what would you look at i mean going back to to your point on on social impacts if you're pooling equity together in a fund structure what, what would that actually invest in
1: we've we've looked at um trying to trying to build a social and environmental impact strategy which which is very much true to our longer-term investment thesis. So so we've been running uh, our investment strategies along the lines of what we'd call D, T, U, and E, which is demographics, technology, urbanization, and in the environment. And then we've been doing that along those themes for the last uh, 10 years or so. And we see that, that sustainable and uh, sustainable in the broadest sense, so socially and environmentally sustainable investment is, is very much part of that. And that's been the big challenge to to talk to investors about what an impact asset strategy looks like that, that you're not doing already because you know as Mervyn says you know we can we can look at real estate as a social infrastructure asset anyway and, it, and all types of real estate are in the sense that they provide accommodation for for finance for for, for business activity for for shelter etc um, but our our approach is to try and build on those sort of broad broad investment themes um, try and link those in with both International uh, sustainable agendas such as the un's um, sustainability development goals, but also looking more localized at what what impact requirements are at almost down to a local authority level, so the index of multiple deprivation focusing on on centers where there is less financial access to financial capital um, and and very much focusing on delivering Assets to those places where you currently can't make a very strong investment case, or the investment case is more difficult.
2: Mm. It's uh, the risk of being slightly controversial here. It's 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 kind of interesting, isn't it? A challenge where we're talking about social impact vehicles and ethical funds, and and uh, going back a little bit, perhaps uh, sustainability or green funds. Because what does it imply about what else you're doing? Does it mean you're being non-ethical in the other funds or, or, or non-green? Um so, so it's a little bit of a little bit of a challenge and I think the challenge that you Always get from your investors, or the the challenge they have is to say, well, is there a is there an economic trade-off here? Am I prepared to accept a lower return for backing these types of strategies? But what are my responsibilities as an institution to my policyholders or investors or, or what have you? So, uh, I think I think um, I think where I personally come down is, you know, I think these things have to have to embed themselves in in your overall investment strategies and and the things that, that philip was just talking about sound to me like they're they're good investment strategies thinking about technology thinking about areas because we can talk about sustainability with a big s or we can talk about sustainability with a small s and to me that means good long long term investments and and they should should tick a lot of these these boxes anyway
0: should but will people pay for them i think is is the obvious question because i mean it's fair enough The Reva Royal Institute, British Architects, came out recently, along with everybody else, of of sane mind to declare a climate emergency. But often the case will be that an architect will come up with a project that looks beautiful and and ticks all the right boxes, but then an investor will go, sorry, guys, we're not going to pay for that. So how do you square that circle, Mervyn, in terms of, you know, because you've worked... Over the years, as an advisor to Gresby, haven't you, in in your previous roles, that's been, sustainability has been a large part of your focus. So how are those conversations had when there is a, a moral need, and very soon probably a regulatory one as well, to meet certain criteria, but not always the investor appetites pay for it.
2: Yeah, it's a very good question. Um, it's 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 tough to get at really empirical evidence that shows that if you invest in a sustainable building, it will perform better than than anything else. Uh, there are so many so many factors that come into play. I, I think there are two two main drivers that can really help. Uh, There's government policy and legislation, and and we saw that with the legislation around EPCs, Energy Performance Certificates, that said, you know, if you are not at a certain level, you are not allowed to sell or lease a building. So that has a very direct consequence. That's a small example, but I, I think regulation will come into it. Um, we've got uh, the Committee on Climate Change that came out with their report and recommendations to government in February, which said all sorts of things about UK housing, uh, all sorts of targets that could be introduced. That's obviously something the government has to think about, but it's it's all directed at, at, at I- improving environment and sustainability issues. So there's the kind of, you've got to, you, you, you know, do you engage in it? Because you don't want to suffer detriment, or do you want to engage in it, engage in it because you think there will be positive outperformance as a, as a hard-headed investor? Mm.
0: And, and, and Philip, now how do you view seeing how are you seeing investor sentiment change in recent times, in, in terms of not just on sustainability, because I think everybody is now minded to support doing the right thing by the environment, but, but equally, there is an aversion to risk. That we that we are seeing grow,
1: yeah, I, I'd agree. And, and actually, also, I think that the challenge for a lot of us is that is you know, for, for landlords that a lot of the space that we end up constructing, we we lose control over it. Certainly, in terms of a you know utilities, water, waste, etc. Um, so you can build the most sustainable building, and once it's filled up with people once a tenant that- takes occupation, you've you know to, to a large degree you have lost control. And, and I, it's been a few years ago now, but I, I was negotiating. Uh, a new lease with a, a, a major food store operator who at the time, uh, and uh, like them all, so I don't think this narrows it down, um, had a pretty public policy of sustainability. You we know, looked on their website, and that was, f- that was very much uh, how they were projecting themselves. But as, as soon as we got into a conversation about introducing some green clauses into the lease, which was giving us information about the sort of fit-out they were doing, what sort of energy consumption they were doing, we had no control over that. It was merely a, uh, a data um, uh, uh, obligation to provide us with information. They refused, in the, they refused to put it in the lease. And actually, the challenge I would say to the institutions is that at, at, at the final closing of that deal, because the deal, it was more important for us to get the financial situation resolved than the environmental one, we, we ended up signing the lease without those clauses. So both were culpable, I guess, in that sense.
0: Mm. And 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 I suppose that's one of the problems, Mervyn. If you know, if you're growing a business, you, you need that money on board, don't you?
2: Well, you absolutely do. And and uh, you know, it's the investors, it's the capital that will ultimately drive these decisions. Whether it's 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 the uh, long-term owners or the lenders. Uh, so if they won't lend, if they won't recognise value. Um, that's going to hold you back. I think you you asked me before in your previous question about um, Gresby, which is the Global Real Estate Sustainability Benchmark, and I think it is worth a mention because um, it it is a completely investor-led initiative, uh, which is, as the name says, global across the world to try and get a consistent measure of how managers, the custodians of their capital, approach. Environment sustainability issues um, and and it then really creates a benchmark as a measure and it creates a, a measure by which investors can can look at different uh, managers asset classes regions public uh, private entities to say well how are they performing in terms of hard data on buildings uh, water consumption energy use carbon emissions etc and some of the softer stuff which is about organization and policy Uh, And as Philip says, there are going to be situations where you cannot control the full outcome of what happens in a building. Uh, But the direction of travel, I think, is a very positive one. And we've seen a huge growth in the number of participants in that index over the 10 years it's been alive for. So you can see that there's a, there's a real industry push to try and get our heads around these issues and improve. And there have definitely been improvements over that period of time. And, and that
0: issue of, of transparency is something that we, we kind of get here in Britain, don't we? The UK market is pretty transparent on many levels when you compare it certainly to places like Germany.
1: Absolutely. Um, and I think when, you know, UK-based managers have gone into other markets across Europe and elsewhere and, uh, and, and sought to set up funds in a similar fashion to those in the UK, they've, they've been surprised, actually, at the relative lack of transparency in some, in some parts of the developed world where you think it would be, uh, it would be on a par with the UK. And it's, it's one of the reasons why we have one of the deepest and most established and most, most liquid real estate markets in the world. Mm. And and in terms of um, just drilling down onto residential, because
0: that's that's been a growing part of LaSalle's mm. business in the UK, has been built to rent, um, and you've been focusing on on a number of UK cities, both in England and Scotland. Um, focus very much on on that that mid level product, haven't you? But not not hugely amenity rich, but you know with some amenity and and, a, and obviously a prioritising service, but.
1: Yeah, I, I mean, I think it depends where you, where you sort of set your levels. If you set your levels at um, the private landlord rented sector, then I'd hope we would be well above mid level. Um, but in terms of the the sort of grading of institutional product, yeah, you know, we we have. Yeah, that's kind of what I mean. So really, it's, not, it's, it's not it's not it's yeah. not affordable
0: housing. But it's not luxury.
1: Absolutely, um, we 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 have tried to, and this has been mainly client uh, led. To be honest, we've tried to invest where we felt those markets are deepest. Um, the, the, the big question, I think, for, for build-to-rent investors generally, and it'd be interesting to get Mervyn's view here, is whilst we, you know, when I first got involved in built to five or so years ago, um, when I was at, a, at, at Hermes, it was, it was very easy to sell the concept of not enough housing in the UK and the concept of a built to rent market establishing itself. That investment thesis was a really easy one to to, to articulate to investors the bigger challenge I felt was, was what do you ultimately invest in? Um, and I remember it wasn't that long ago that, that pretty much every investor I could, I could think of wanted to have an investment in Manchester. And yeah, and we're, we're, we're invested in Manchester, and we, we, we're doing really well in Manchester, as I know uh, Mervyn is uh, for Apache as well. But um, you know, the, the short-term supply spikes in nascent markets are things that I think we all need to think about how those are going to translate into our returns. And how do you make your asset defensible? ultimately um you know against an oversupply spike because it'll take a while for these markets to normalize
0: but i guess if you're looking at things over the long term a short-term blip or dip doesn't necessarily matter does it if you're holding it for for the it
1: it doesn't it depends it depends on the real strategy yeah absolutely and it depends on uh you know ultimately yes we're looking at holding these assets for five to ten years maybe longer who knows um but when, when clients need liquidity, and invariably, certainly from my experience uh, in, in, in a former life, they want liquidity at exactly the wrong time in a, in a <laughs> cycle. Um, and if your asset is in the wrong time of its cycle as well, because you happen to be experiencing oversupply in your marketplace, that might not be such a good thing.
0: Mm. But then I guess that's, that's a question of having the right kind of investor relations so that, that people understand the, the philosophy and, and the approach that you're taking and the risks that come with that.
1: Yeah, and it's a responsibility. I mean, you've talked about reputation and responsibility already. I think it's a responsibility on the fund management industry in real estate. And I I genuinely think we are in a lot better place now than we were maybe 10, 15 years ago uh, when we first embraced non-long-term institutional capital. But it's the way that we engage with our clients, the way that we communicate with them, I think has is, is got to be front and centre of... The way we run our businesses.
0: And Mervyn, in terms of your philosophy at Apache, how does that differ from what LaSalle's doing?
2: Well, it is different because we're going for a high amenity model in our Build to Rent program. Um, and, you know, I just need to make a point here when we talk about high amenity or higher quality specification design operations, we're not talking about Prime Central, London, for sale, uh, which is in a completely different area and sometimes people people sort of start to think in that direction. What we're talking about is housing for local people in the different locations that we're investing in. As Philip mentioned, Manchester, but also Birmingham, Liverpool, Leeds, uh, some London locations, um, um, Edinburgh, Glasgow, so we've done an awful lot of work to see what the incomes and demographics are in that location to ensure that what we're building is affordable. But I I would go back to um, the comment I made before. We're we're trying to build sustainable with a small s investments in what we're doing, and we we look at two things. We have two reference points, really, for what we're doing. One is the North American multifamily market, and the other is the UK student accommodation market. And starting with the student accommodation market, when that first started emerging as a a privately funded um, asset class, uh, we had a first-generation product that didn't have to compete too hard with existing stock. It was generally rather run down. the alternative
0: was a, a kind of a... Damp-filled HMO?
2: Uh, yes, or run-down, rundown university accommodation. Um, and so at, at that stage, to build a, a privately funded um, student hall was, um, w- w- you know, the specification didn't have to be that high. What we've seen over sort of 15, 20 years of that industry evolving is those buildings needing to move to higher amenity, higher specification. That's what the students want.
0: And your deal in Pool Street earlier this year that the building you sold to Greystar, that's a perfect example of that.
2: Absolutely. That, that was a landmark transaction. It set a record yield uh, selling to institutional investors... Uh, and, and, yeah, we, we, uh, we're very pleased with what we're able to do with our investors for that. But it was a high high amenity, high specification model. That and and that's, that's what you're doing with motor living, isn't it? So that's the, what the, we're doing for motor living. And, and you know, this is where we look to the, the the multifamily market in the North America. And we've done a lot of research looking over there, looked at lots of operators. And what we found is that the strongest performing assets over in that market are the high quality, high amenity models that are very well managed. Uh, and they're commanding you know, 20 to 30% rent premiums over the standard product in the states. Now, we think that's what's gonna happen in this market. We can't prove it, we can't underwrite to that at the moment. Uh, but we're convinced that over a five, 10 year uh, timeframe, that's what will happen in this market as this product proves itself. At the moment, this product does not really exist in the market. And going back to something that Philip said, I mean, you know, we are concerned about overdevelopment, oversupply in some of these markets, but it would be interesting to see if this really happens because I think the quality. Of the product, not just what we're doing, but what Lasalle's doing, and different different um, different different product levels, different types of, of product. Uh, the better and that, quality, and that becomes the defensive
0: characteristic. Well, isn't it,
2: it, it does. I think I think if it's good quality product that's built well, will last and is well managed. I I think these are the assets that will perform and will sustain themselves. Others that haven't built and can't manage to that level uh, will underperform. First generation student accommodation hasn't gone away, but it's not performing at the same level as, as as current generation. I think we'll see more differentiation in the build-to-rent market as a result of that. And, and, and Philip, now
0: talking about going back to thinking about how how we could be more progressive, do do we need to be more progressive of how we use data to tell these stories? Again, obviously, you're, you're in the marketplace seeking investment, whether that's for social impact or, or build-to-rent. You've got a number of standing assets now that are performing pretty well. How could we collectively as a sector be, be pooling some of this data for mutual benefit? Is there a way to do yeah, that? I that? Think,
1: I think measurement is a real challenge. Um, you know, measurement in real estate has been a challenge. Mervyn's already talked about environmental measurement and how one does that and how one proves that environmentally sustainable buildings are lower risk, cheaper to operate, potentially higher rent- rental um, demand, et cetera. And... and you know, there have been lots of studies that have said they are, and lots of studies that said they they aren't. Um, I think the same challenges apply in a broader impact context. To be honest, um, how do you tell those stories is is hugely important, um, both locally and nationally. You know, if we're trying to attract both UK and overseas capital to some of these some of these ideas, um, it's it, it, it's hugely important. I mean, I, I, personally, I, I you know, I, I come back to that point that I think. Real estate has an obligation to do more in this space, whether you call it an impact strategy or call it a just a general real estate strategy. Um, I, I truly believe that real estate is the ultimate impact asset class. I, I think we've got to chase impact capital and not real estate capital. If you look at the, the, the amount of impact funds that currently exist in the UK, they are a fraction of overall real They're estate allocation. Tiny, aren't they? They're tiny. They're tiny. But as a proportion of UK ethical Mandates—they are larger, and but actually, then to
0: do that, you've you've really got to make that case that says this yeah, is the impact we're
1: creating. Absolutely, and, and and that's why you know, and it's no it, it's no um, surprise that that the majority of those strategies have focused on housing because housing is the most demonstrable impact you you can make. It's it's easy to to talk about the numbers. Um, I, I think it's more challenging if you if you start to look beyond that.
0: But but it, but but exciting nonetheless that that you seem to be viewing. Social infrastructure as a collective and and thinking around healthcare, education, and other things alongside housing as part of that pie.
1: Yeah, yeah, and I I think it's a changing world of our investors. You know, the, the the industry as a whole has relied on defined benefit pension scheme capital for a long time. That has changed. You know, we've had the introduction of international capital. We've had the introduction of uh, of, of shorter term and, uh, you know, private equity capital, um, defined contribution, you know, I think if you look at younger investors, there's a much higher demand for ethical investment than there is in older generations generally. And I, I think that that will continue to change as, as those people move through the savings hierarchy.
0: And, and just, to, just to finish off, Mervyn, what, what, how do you see investor appetites evolving? How, how else are they going to change? I mean, I think Philip makes a good point there in terms of a greater focus on sustainability. Is there a greater appetite for risk? Is there a greater necessity for risk now?
2: I, I, look, I really think it's, it depends what you're talking about. Uh, as Philip was saying earlier, you know the real estate industry historically has had a, a very segmented view of what it invests in, whether it's retail offices uh, industrial, what have you. Um, so I, I think what investors are looking for fundamentally is good long term income streams uh, and and what what 's going to deliver that well, Higher, higher demand, lower supply areas uh, uh, is clearly one of the things that they'll look at. Uh, we're seeing that really now in social infrastructure areas. Um, I think also they're focused much more on what is the product. I mean, uh, uh, Apache is not only an investor, but we're a developer and operator of these assets. And you can you can attack these issues um, in a far greater way if you are creating the assets rather than trying to retrofit the existing assets. So I think developers. Uh, investors rather, will look at development situations where they're seeing that they're going to be part of creating long-term, stable, growing income streams. So we've been slightly surprised by the evolution of the appetite from institutional investors to get involved in the asset creation stage. Getting
0: their hands a bit more dirty.
2: Yeah, but but why? It's because you can then help influence uh, the type of asset that you're holding long term. So it's the it's the build to core strategy that a number of institutional investors are, are now following, um, and and so. You know, it's it's interesting, Philip was talking about talking to investors about, about different types of investment and, and particularly residential. What we've found is that if we talk to certain categories of international investors, particularly North American or those that invest in North America, when we're talking about the residential sector, we don't have to explain the dynamics of the market to them. What we have to explain to them is why it hasn't happened already. Whereas if we're talking to local investors, we're having to talk to them right from the beginning of the journey. That's changing now. So, so there are different dynamics, and we're finding that, that, that a lot of North American and, and international capital is coming into this residential sector and at an earlier stage than, than might historically have been the case.
0: And, and just to finish, Philip, do you agree all we collectively in the market needing to take more of a hands on role in creation and clearly also operational risk as well where
1: you are I facing think, the I lease think it's a there. very good point I mean I was just about to say operational risk is is the changing factor I think in certainly my my career you know gone are the days of valuing four checks a year um, you know we we feel I think as a business much more like a sort of private equity underwriting business than we ever used to i mean mervyn made an interesting point about the the student housing market and you know we were one of the first investors certainly at scale in the uk in the student housing market from an institutional perspective but we invested into let accommodation you know we, we didn't take o- operational risk we, we basically bought leases from universities or, or, or operators in the same way as as that has transitioned now into taking operational risk and you can see it in the hotel market institutional investors are now now, actually, positively and proactively going out seeking operational risk in hotels as opposed to necessarily taking, taking leases. Um, and I think that that is, that is just a factor of the way that the world is working. You know, the, the, the change in legislation, the risks around CVAs or company voluntary arrangements, and, and how those have affected people's true feelings around the guarantee of income out of a lease, uh, has made even underwriting leases more like private equity.
0: So beyond bricks and mortar, into the world of operations and investors wanting to you know, have more of a uh, more of a stake in, in what they're creating and what they're running. Well, look, fantastic! Thank you so much for your time today, Philip Nell from LaSalle, Mervyn Howard from Apache Capital Partners. This has been a podcast for property week for the resi convention that's coming up in september on the 11th of september so please stay tuned to propertyweek.com for the latest updates on that and i've been andrew teacher the founder of blackstock consulting thank you